My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted to be joined today by Bill McKibben, who's a writer whose work I have long admired as a subscriber to the New York Review of Books. And I would say, Bill, that your writings have really shaped my view of the world and particularly, of course, the challenge of climate change. And I've been most recently reading your new book, Falter. So, Bill, welcome to Building Bridges to the Future. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And thank you for offering this service in a hard time. First question I want to ask, Bill, before we get into the kind of main substance of the conversation is how has lockdown been for you personally? As easy as it could have been for anybody in the world, I think. I live deep in the woods in Vermont, and I'm a you know writer to begin with. <laughs> so the distance between social isolation and freelance writing is not that great to begin with. And I can walk out the door and into the woods whenever I want which makes my life very, very easy. So compared to almost anybody else on planet Earth, I've had an easy go of it. And it's one of the challenges of this crisis, isn't it, Bill, for us to remember that, you know, for some of us, it's not that onerous. And some people even have found the kind of quiet, quite liberating. But it's very, very different if you've lost your job, if you are in an overcrowded house where there's not enough access to broadband, you're trying to do your children's homework or whatever. Well, I think it's a really different prospect. I continue to think of my friends in places like India or Bangladesh who are having to shelter in place. But, you know, we tell people to wash their hands, but there's hundreds of millions of people with no running water. You know, half of humanity lives four and five people to a room, you know. So one should have enormous, enormous compassion for people who are dealing with just horrendous troubles all over the planet. And the impact of this virus in the developing world could be particularly catastrophic, especially kind of on the economic side beyond the health issue in terms of the fragility of their economies, I guess. Well, of course, and we're at a moment when everything blends into each other. I mean, as we talked this morning, there's a Category 5 cyclone bearing down on the shore of Bangladesh. It's not like the people of Bengal did anything to cause the problem we're now in, but they're suffering acutely from climate change. They're having to figure out how to deal with evacuations of millions of people at a moment when, you know, getting together in crowds is a recipe for getting sick. It's a very hard time. So, Bill, there's so much in that answer I'd like to delve in further. But I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody on this podcast, which is, Bill McKibben, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? So I think that there 
There are no silver linings to a pandemic, but if we're going to go through this much trouble, we might as well learn something. And it seems to me you can group the possible lessons in three ways, all of which are very applicable to this question I've spent my life on climate change. So the first one is, it's a striking reminder that reality, in fact, is real. You know, we spend our lives hunched behind screens where the world seems very mutable and adaptable. But as I've tried to explain to people for three decades, physics and chemistry don't negotiate and they don't compromise. The pandemic is making the same argument for biology. I mean, our witless president stands up at the lectern and basically yells at the coronavirus and calls it a hoax and says it should disappear or whatever. It doesn't care. It's in charge here. It's setting the limits. If it says stand six feet apart, stand six feet apart, you know. So that notion that reality is real probably is a useful reminder. And with it comes a corollary that's, I think, really important, which is that speed matters. You know, in the U.S., we're quite aware, some of us anyway, that the U.S. and South Korea had their first case of coronavirus on the same day in January. So the South Koreans went right to work and did what they needed to do and disrupted things some, no big gatherings or whatever. And now they're looking at this in more or less the rearview mirror. It's not solved, but they didn't have the trauma we did, either economic or medical. The U.S. did nothing. We wasted the whole month of February. And as a result, now not only do we have to disrupt things on a massive scale, but we have a huge pile of dead bodies. And that's truly tragic. The analogy to climate change couldn't be much clearer. You know, we lost our chance 30 years ago to flatten the carbon curve, to do what we should have been doing long ago. And when we didn't do that, we guaranteed ourselves that we would both have more disruption later on and that no matter what we did, we'd be in a bad place. That bad place looks like half the sea ice in the summer Arctic melted. You know, that bad place looks like Australia burning to the ground over the Christmas holidays. So, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we're still going to have to move fast. In fact, we have so little time to deal with climate change that we have to move at almost light speed. But even if we do it all right at this point, a great deal of pain comes with it. Third lesson for me, and maybe the most important, is that social solidarity is required. You know, I've lived my life in the political shadow of Ronald Reagan, of Margaret Thatcher, who insisted that markets best solved most problems, that our job was to pursue our own individual self-interest. That idea has basically dominated our political life these last decades. Ronald Reagan's famous laugh line in his speech was that the nine scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Ha ha ha. Turns out the scariest words in the English language are, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house is caught on fire. And those are not problems that we can address one person at a time. Those are the kind of problems that require us to take seriously the notion of human solidarity, of joint action, of coming together to solve problems. So for me, those are the things that we might take from this strange dislocating moment in human history, by far the oddest moment that either of us have lived through in a collective sense. Reading your book, I was reminded of 
the famous line of Antonio Gramsci when he encourages his followers to exercise optimism of the will at the same time as pessimism of the intellect. And, and your book, in a sense, is very much like that. It reminds us of the mistakes that we've made, the warnings that we haven't heeded, the trouble that we are inevitably going to face. And we have no choice, I guess, Bill, but it still says, look, there is something about the human spirit, there is something about human beings that leads us to believe that even now, even at this late stage, it is possible for us to wake up and to do what must be done. Now, intellectually, I absolutely hear those lessons. I'd like to explore them a bit more in a moment. But is there anything that gives you reason to believe that these messages, the ones that you derive from it, are being derived from it more broadly by our political leaders, by our citizens? Well, I think over the last couple of years, I mean, the encouraging thing that we've seen before this pandemic was finally the rise of a big widespread movement around climate change, around this great overarching crisis. You know, the kind of work that we began a decade ago with things like 350.org, the first iterations of a climate movement now have Extinction Rebellion and the Green New Deal and the amazing climate striking youth and so on and so forth. Those are signs, to use an analogy that we're now getting familiar with, those are signs of the kind of planet's antibodies kicking in, you know. The planet is literally running a fever, and so our political immune system begins to react. That's good news, but it's not a guarantee of anything because, of course, there's plenty of times when people get sick and their immune system starts to react, but it's not enough and they die. And so what we need is to build that immune system, those antibodies, very fast and very strong. And that's the open question here. Were climate change a normal challenge, i.e. one that you could work on steadily over decades? I have no doubt we'd get where we need to go. Our problem is that like the coronavirus, it's one that if you don't solve it quickly, you don't solve. And whether or not our societies are any longer geared for reaction at the necessary speed? I don't know. You can read the lessons from the pandemic either way. There are some societies that seemed capable of doing it. Mine in America seems flailing and incompetent and kind of frankly pathetic in the face of this challenge. So I don't know how optimistic to be. I know only that we might as well keep trying as hard as we can right now, because as you say, what choice really is there? See, my sense, Bill, is that when future historians write about our time, if indeed there are any future historians, given the mistakes that we're making right now, they will look on this crisis, this moment, as a time of potential learning. And they will either look back and say, that was the wake-up call, that was when people understood that reality is real, that speed matters, that we're in this together. Or else they will say the reverse. They will say, despite that wake-up call, nothing happened. And whether it's the contrast between World War II and World War I, or the contrast between the learning that took place out of the AIDS epidemic, which ultimately led to behaviour change, the disease being more or less conquered, and a transformation attitude towards the LGBT community, or the 2007-8 financial crisis where hopes were so high of change and those hopes were dashed, and if anything, things went into reverse. So we know that the relationship between crisis and long-term intentional change is very contingent. And I know, for example, that within the UK, there's a debate currently taking place in Whitehall between those who say, 
We need growth at any cost. The economy is completely screwed. Any kind of growth is good growth. Just getting back to work is the priority. We don't have any time for anything else versus those who say, here's an opportunity for a green recovery. In terms of those debates, do you have a sense of what the critical factors are in making sure that we do turn this crisis to our advantage? Yeah. So here I can be a little hopeful. The difference between now and 2008 is that in the intervening decade or so, the engineers on this planet dropped the price of a solar panel or a wind turbine about 90%. So renewable energy is now the cheapest way to generate power on our planet. And that means that if we wanted to move at fantastic speed, reminiscent of the reaction to Pearl Harbor or something, then we could. There's no longer a kind of technological or economic barrier. But there remains the enormous barrier of vested interest in the fossil fuel industry that's hamstrung our response for a very long time. And so I think the ground is there for that kind of rapid change. And I think you're right. This is the moment when we either will or won't take that opportunity. I mean, we talk about the Green New Deal, and it does hearken obviously very much back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the early 1930s. And it was only because we'd fallen into that pit that we were able to make change on that kind of scale. And then, of course, making change on that kind of scale set us up for decade upon decade of a much better and happier planet in a lot of ways. So I think you're right. This is one of these hinge moments. And in the relevant time frame for dealing with the greatest crisis humans have ever faced climate change, it does feel like this may be the last of those hinge moments that comes at a time when we still have sufficient leverage to really, really affect the outcome. So the way we think about this at the RSA is to suggest that the factors that shape whether or not crisis leads to change are threefold. First of all, before the crisis, there has to be the demand for change and the capacity for change. Change doesn't just come from nowhere. Secondly, in the crisis, the demand for change has to increase. And then thirdly, as you emerge from crisis, you have the political coalitions and the practical policy ideas which enable you to take advantage of people's willingness to think about things differently, possibly to make sacrifices. Now, thinking of climate change, those conditions look as though they apply. And I'm interested particularly in kind of political coalitions, because one thing I do sense that's changed over the last few years, partly as a result of people like you, is that the attitude of large parts of the corporate sector has shifted. Maybe not the fossil fuel industry, but large parts of the corporate sector, including large parts of finance, do seem to have woken up to this. And do you think that is an important shift in terms of the political coalitions for rapid and radical action that can be built? I think it's a crucial Thing, and I'm very glad that you've picked up on it. That's my assessment in a lot of ways, too. I think that there are two levers big enough to pull here that might result in the kind of change that we actually need. One is political and the other is financial. They're obviously linked in certain ways, but they're also obviously separate in certain ways. Political change comes slowly in the best of circumstances. And in countries like mine now, it rarely comes at all anymore. I mean, we're managed to build a kind of dysfunctional political system. On the other hand, change when it comes through financial systems can come with fairly lightning speed. You know, something happens and it's reflected in the markets in the matter of minutes. More to the point, it's much more global in its operation. Washington doesn't rule the world anymore. London doesn't rule the world anymore. No one quite rules the world in that 
old way, probably for the better. But Wall Street still kind of does, you know, and the city and a few other places with that kind of impact. And so as they begin to shift, there could be real change here. This is a place where I've worked for a long time. You know, we kind of cooked up this divestment movement from fossil fuel that's become the largest corporate campaign of its kind in history. We're at about $14 trillion now in endowments and portfolios, including, thank heaven, most recently, Oxford University announcing its divestment from fossil fuel. And that's put extraordinary pressure on this industry and on its financial stability. And we've seen that this winter in dramatic ways. BlackRock, the asset manager that's the biggest box of money on planet Earth, uh, something like $1 in eight in the world, rests in its digital vaults, made an extraordinary series of announcements in January about how climate change would be a kind of governing factor in their thinking and decision-making going forward. We don't know what the practical fruits of that exactly are going to be, but they obviously could be enormous. Uh, We've been targeting groups like J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest bank in the world and the biggest fossil fuel lender, and with increasing success. So I think that this is one of the places where this is going to play out. And one way to think about it is that It rebalances the politics of this crisis in interesting ways. I mean, the reason that the fossil fuel industry is so politically powerful is tied to their wealth. As financial community understands that their prospects for growth are limited to nil, that political power begins to shrink. And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has almost certainly gotten us to. The very rapid demand drop for fossil energy probably means that 2019 was the peak year of oil consumption on this planet. And that almost certainly means that we've seen the peak of the political influence of this industry, which has spent the last 30 years effectively preventing change to deal with the climate crisis. So in that sense, we may come out of this pandemic in a somewhat different political spot. I mean, obviously, you've got the issue of the president in America and the way that that represents a kind of barrier to almost anything rational or progressive taking place. But nevertheless, are the conversations taking place, Bill, between the environmental movement, the economists, the business leaders, to develop a plan for building back better, ready to be taken forward if there was a change at the top? Yeah. I mean, loosely grouped under this rubric of a Green New Deal, there's a lot of thinking and work going on. And all of it, as you say, all the political work rests on the proposition that we have someone other than the clown currently leading our country in charge of things after this fall's elections. In my experience, political change comes only from unrelenting pressure. No matter who gets elected in November, they'll need a movement pressing them all the time. But I do think that the kind of intellectual construct is increasingly there. And it's not that difficult. Look, we're going to come out of a pandemic with massive unemployment around the world. If you try and tally up the list of tasks on the planet that actually require tens of millions of hands to get them done, really, I think the list begins and ends with transferring our world from one energy paradigm to another. 
doing that work of retrofitting buildings for energy efficiency, doing that work of installing renewable energy around the planet, those things could sop up the labor that's now going to be in great, great distress. And so there's, there is a kind of political possibility. But as I say, at least in this country, an awful lot of it hinges on breaking the political power of the fossil fuel industry. Stepping back a moment to how this crisis has impacted us as individuals, my sense is that it has led people to start to question assumptions they have, values they have, things that matter. One small example is the way this crisis has reminded us of the lack of alignment between people's market value and people's social value. As we focus on key workers, whether they're in the health service or social care or just kind of, you know, delivering food to people, these are the people we are relying on. You know, corporate lawyers, not quite so much right now. Obviously, changes in our worldview, our individual worldview, are not going to do the hard work of transforming our energy systems and transforming our economies. But how important is that? And one of the reasons I asked that is because your book, Falter, at the end of it, reminded me of another book I've been reading, which is Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind. And in that book, Bregman wants to argue very strongly, and he argues very strongly, that for 40 years, we've been convinced by this idea that human beings are basically bad people. And we need to create societies around the idea that people are basically bad people. And all the evidence is that actually people are, generally speaking, good people. And if we could only arrange our structures and our systems and our processes around that assumption, the world would be a very different place. Do you think we don't have time to think about a different worldview because we just got to get on in reforming our systems? Or is that an integral part of how it is we rise to this challenge? I've always thought that you um, reform systems, change systems in the act of fighting for what you need, that the way that we come to a new place is not by figuring it all out in advance in some heavily intellectual way. It's that we build that future in the course of fighting for the things that we need. So, you know, we need solar power and wind power. We fight for them and we build movements that can create them. You know, those movements are all about social solidarity. And then they leave us in a world where energy is something that's a little more democratic and produced closer to home and not under the control of a few oligarchs in various parts of the world. And hence, we're able to do the next round of political maturing a little easier. I don't see some other way where you change everything about humans and then hope that that's what allows you to go to work on things. We are where we are. We've got a short time to do things. And in the process of doing those things, we can make enormous changes. I do think that it all comes down to very deep questions about whether humans are in this together or whether we're going to continue down the path of hyper-individualism that's marked a kind of consumer society for a long time. And if we continue down that path, I don't really see how we get out of these conundrums. I completely agree about that. You know, we started by, I mentioned that Gramsci quote, which is a slightly depressing quote, but what I'm more fond of is one from, I think, Cornell West, although I'm sure other people had said it. And he said, you know, it's not hope that leads to action so much as action that leads to hope. And I guess that's what you're saying. It's through the work we have to do to tackle this crisis, the climate crisis, that we will start to build the relationships and the possibilities that will open up a different kind of world where we have a capacity for different forms of fulfillment and contentment. There's no guarantees, obviously, that that's what we'll do. 
but that does seem a possibility. Look, one of the truths I think that the pandemic has uncovered is that to a very large extent, our societies have been engaging in social distancing for a long time, long before we were locked down. You know, what are all the screens by which we, you know, spend most of our lives, but a tool for kind of social distancing. And it's easy to see that, you know, the average American has half as many close friends as they did a few decades ago. Maybe we'll come out of this thinking a little differently about how we want to live. And certainly we'll come out of it understanding that simple self-interest isn't enough to deal with the world that we now have to deal with. Well, that's a great point to end on, Bill. So it just remains me to ask you one question, which may be a bit superfluous, given what you said at the beginning about how, in a sense, your ordinary life is carried on through the crisis. But many people in lockdown have found themselves, you know, I've learned how to play the guitar and sing at the same time. Not that I can do either of them, really, but I can do them badly at the same time. Other people have been baking bread. In the last few weeks, have you developed any new enthusiasms or activities? You know, most of my enthusiasms are all things I can keep pursuing. So I'm, you know, out wandering around the woods. But for us, there's actually been an increase in socialness. My daughter and her fiance have been sheltering with us these last 11 weeks. So I have much more incentive to every day prepare a really good dinner. And that has been fun and a reminder that the simple rhythms of the day are a great blessing, especially in times of confusion. Well, Bill, I'm just off to cook dinner for my family, but this has been a great pleasure to talk to you. Bill McGovern, thank you very much. Thank you so much and for all your good work in just kind of keeping us thinking as we go through this, because that's really what it's going to take. Thank you. Take care. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.